get deep in rewrites, writes, um, and search project yeah. with um, with the goddess. I am co-writing a mystery, a romantic mystery, Ooh. you know, or something like that Ooh. with her. Um, a matter of fact, at Deadly Inc. Uh, mystery Conference, which I'm going to go to later this week, uh, we have, we're have we printing up small um, excerpts from it, maybe about 30, 32 pages, and we'll be giving out little booklets with that in there for free, uh, asking for feedback on it. So, um, uh, hopefully See, that now You sprung that one on me, because I didn't know you were working on that with the goddess. And that's, that's right, it's a surprise. You left, you left the quality facts out, obviously, you know, and we have to talk about that. When it's something, then we'll talk more about it. But it is... Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, a co-worker who has read some of my stuff uh, thought that I would be really good at writing um, suspenseful or mystery romance. And the romance part, I was lost at, you know. Uh, well, you know, it's a different genre. It's the best-selling genre. Um, so you have to respect it and learn the tropes, learn the rules. And uh, I spoke with that uh, Tina, and that's the goddess, folks. The goddess, and really worked on getting her to agree to do uh, it with me. And we're writing under a pseudonym. Ah. Uh, taking one of her initials, one of my initials, and uh, some of the letters of our son's names. So the author name will be T.C. Tilson, and um, the excerpt that's going to be given out at Deadly Inc. is from what could be, possibly, the first uh, of a series called, uh, from Sands Investigations, and this one is called Sands of Time. So uh, there you go. I got I to gotta ask, just out of curiosity, I don't want you to reveal anything you don't want to reveal, but... Is this a, a present-day situation, a period present piece? Present-day, the setting is the Jersey Shore. Ah, okay. And, and um, Harry and Genevieve Sands are the second generation of um, Sands Investigation. Uh, Dan Sands was their dad, and um, they are half-siblings, about eight months apart or three months apart, I forget. Um from two different mothers. And um, there was a reason why the first Genevieve's mom and, and Dan were broken up at the time. He thought it was forever. And there was a consolation night, you know, he was feeling bad, someone else was feeling bad, and things got out of hand. And then all there it is. Yeah. There you go. So, you know, Dan was a kind of a, a, a messed up guy. And the pregnancy destroyed a chance of him getting back with his wife, she wanted to try it again, and he had to be honest that, you know, he was with someone else, he didn't know that there was a pregnancy going on with either of them at the time, and he was thrown out again, and then wow. both of them informed that they were pregnant, and, uh, so these two grew up as half-siblings, Genevieve always blaming Harry for destroying her family, so they don't really, they Genevieve doesn't uh, approve of or, or want to love her half-brother Harry, but 
Brothers Genevieve with all his heart. And he's very dedicated to keeping Sam's investigations alive and helping her in any way he can, trying to win her, her over. Both of them both of them are broken, you know, emotionally broken. She's very defensive because of how she grew up. He's overcompensates because he gives up. You know, so he's very loving. He's older. She's older by a couple of months. Yeah, okay. but um, she believes that Harry has a um, uh, birth defect that he um, leaks pheromones. <laughs> but he is <laughs> he is very um, attractive and um, appealing to women, and since he's always trying to love and always trying to, you know. Gain love back. Uh, that that creates a lot of romantic uh, opportunities. While Genevieve has someone who loves her very much, and because she's very protective, and because of the existing, still in 2019, existing double standards, she has to be overprotective as a woman. Mm. And you know, so we get to discuss the the double standards and the unfairness of that, and and their journey to try and. Uh, reconcile both their family and their love lives and while investigating various mysteries around to shore. So hopefully it'll be fun. Uh, I'll get back to you on how it goes. But uh, there's one other thing I want to say before we go to our uh, what you what you want to topic. You know, I did get to go, the goddess and I did get to leave town. I've been really just kind of getting up, writing with the morning tea, going for the walk, coming back, writing until the dog gets up, walking the dog, getting back, writing, and it just goes back. Um, <laughs> you know, all summer long, and when I can't write anymore, I'm reading and that kind of stuff. But um, we took a couple of days just recently. And took the advice of Louis Black, the uh, uh, famous angry comedian. <laughs> okay. uh, and we saw him live uh, several months ago. In the middle of his uh, show, he stopped and said, Listen, uh, you really should make a trip and see the uh, a new uh, museum, new attraction called the National Comedy Center. He said, no one will be able to find it because it's in Jamestown, New York. Uh, but we did. Uh, Goddess and I just took a, uh, a left at the New York border and went west for like seven or eight hours. And, uh, it was a beautiful ride. Uh, most of the um, southern tier, they call it, that region of New York, which is the western, the bottom western part, southwestern part of the state that goes way out towards Buffalo. And, you know, you keep going, you probably hit uh, Chicago once you get out, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's gorgeous. It's valleys and lakes and, you know, hills. Uh, maybe you can even call them some of the mountains, uh, little tiny mountains, and everything is green and full of trees. It's a very gorgeous ride. And then uh, when, when you feel like you can't drive another second, there's Jamestown. And uh, we went to the, the we had three museums. Jamestown is the birthplace of Lucille Ball. So there was a Lucy Ball Museum. There was a Desilu 
Bay Museum was the National Comedy Center. And it's a very modern, very interactive, gloriously funny, fun place to visit. Um, Peter and I got into the museum at 11 o'clock, and we were having a great time. And one of the people working there came over to us and very politely said, we're going to be closing in five minutes. It was five to five. <laughs> we had been in there for almost six hours and hadn't even noticed it. Wow. Uh, and we did most of the museum. It was fantastic. Uh, so highly recommended if you are a comedy person and like creativity. And since this is Tell the Damn Story, uh, it's worth mentioning because telling a story through comedy is also very creative, very powerful. If you master comedy, uh, I think you become a very interesting uh, dramatic actor. But uh, that's my endorsement. That's what's been up with me. Now you were on an adventure, invited out yes, yes. to the San Diego Comic Con. Very few people are that, uh, get that. And asked to be on panels. But I know that you were at a particular session with a particular person, and you were able to capture this wonderful talk on tape, and then you have that for us today. Isn't that correct? This is absolutely correct. Uh, much of what you said is on point, and I will tie it together with all the talking we did prior to by saying that um, Chris and I both pursuing you know, writing careers, and I also pursued an acting career uh, during my earlier years and all that, but we've been pursuing our goals, our dreams, our passions uh, for, for decades. And it's part of what fuels our friendship and what fuels our drive to even to teach is helping people really get in touch with the fact that if you're passionate about something, you really love something, you really want to do it, you know, you got to find a way to make that happen because that's who you are. And the person that you are alluding to is um, a producer by the name of Michael Guslin. And for those who do not know Michael's name, uh, if you go back to the first Batman movie with Michael Keaton, uh, which was made in 1989, and you come forward to all of the Batman movies that have been made thus far, he has been the executive producer of all of them. And, yeah, that, that's one of the things that he's done with his life. And he did a type of TED Talk one evening at the San Diego Comic-Con, and I was lucky enough to be able to get a seat because the place was packed, and his son... His adult son introduced him. They, they do projects together and everything. So his son introduced him, and then Michael stepped up to the mic. And Michael, now, again, I don't know what you folks are imagining, but, you know, if you have a, an image of a Hollywood producer being somebody with a stogie and a lot of aggression and all that, that ain't Mike. Okay. <laughs> that ain't him at all. Guy is mellow. He's cool. He's laid back. He's down to earth. He's all of those positive things. So he gets up to the microphone, and he begins to share with us the journey that he was on from year eight of his life to that evening, as we heard the history of the boy who loved Batman. And that, that was actually the name of the book that he wrote, a sort of autobiographical thing about his, his uh, uh, love for the character and how he wanted to, to do something with that character and how his career was actually, I would say, formulated to some degree by his passion for wanting to see Batman done on film and, and in stories and write. So done, yeah, done seriously and all that. Yeah, it's a it's an inspiring uh, uh, talk. Exactly. Yeah, for for all creative people. 
Exactly. And now I got to apologize to the audience. You guys are waiting. I know you're drooling. You got pens and papers to take notes, all that good stuff. I was sitting in the audience with my phone, a little recording app on my phone. And every now and then you can hear a little beep, a little buzz or something like that. Please forgive us for that. But this was something well worth sharing. And I think you can put up with an occasional buzz here and there because what he has to say is very powerful and very instrumental in talking about how to tell a story and how stories can affect you early in life and point you in the direction of where you'd like to go. And, you know, God bless you if you actually are able to accomplish all those dreams and those goals. So, And also, and, and also you know, you asked me to preview it, and I listened um, during those seven hours driving back. <laughs> and it is worth getting past the buzzes because of what he has to say. And it's a wider message. Uh, it is writing, it is, but it's also film. It's also passion. If you have a passion, finding the strength to continue against adversity, thinking on your feet, turning a negative into a positive, sticking your foot in the door, and... Literally. You know, yeah. He has so many great things to say. It's a wonderful, nourishing um, uh, conversation to uh, participate in. So, So, highly recommended. Take it from there, Alex. Right. So without further ado, whatever the heck that means, <laughs> here's Michael Uslan to tell his damn story. All right. Talk to you soon. Peace. Peace. Yeah. Yeah. They're hugging. There's someone doing a signing just to uh, signing as in a sign language. Hey, everybody. This is so much about family. A Comic-Con is about family. It's about this community we've built. You know, this is my 55th annual Comic-Con. Wow. I was at the very first one held on the planet Earth. It was in a flea bag hotel in downtown New York many, many moons ago. 200 of us showed up to the first Comic-Con. It was 197 boys and three girls. And... The big problem at that time was, what are we going to do with 197 boys and three girls on Saturday night? And the guys who were putting it on said, let's just tell everybody to come dressed up as their favorite superhero, and we'll give out prizes. That was the night cosplay was born. And I was there in a costume my mom helped me make, DC Comics Sandman 1940 with the gas mask. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I see where it has grown. It's gone international. We're no longer what was true about collecting comics when I was a kid. It was so damn subversive. And now it is really mainstream. Mm-hmm. You're looking at a guy who, when I was 15, 16, 17 years, in high, years old in high school, as soon as the girls found out I still was reading comic books, I was what I would call date challenged. <laughs> because reading comic books was not cool back then at all. And now it's a date movie. And now it is mainstream and everybody loves this stuff and is inspired by this stuff. But we are all family. We are all part of this community. And I love my superheroes and I love the creators and I love the editors and the publishers and the letterers and the colorists 
most of whom I know, I knew the guys from the 30s to the 60s when I was growing up an hour outside of New York City. My pop used to take me on Sundays and drive me to their homes so I could interview them and get firsthand the knowledge, the understanding of the history of comics, of the companies, of the characters. But since we are family, before I start my little talk tonight, I want to introduce to you two very special members because you're going to say, oh, it's not just Uslan's family, it's my family too. First of all, we would not be here today, there would be no Batman, there would be no DC Comics Batman if it wasn't for a certain gentleman by the name of Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. This is the man who founded DC Comics, who came up with a comic book called New Fun Comics that became more fun, new comics that became adventure comics. He came up with a thing called Detective Comics and was planning a new comic book to be called Action Comics when the axe fell and the company was taken over. Ladies and gentlemen, the author of a wonderful book on comic book history from Hermes Press called DC Comics Before Superman. Let's give a real welcome to the granddaughter of Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, Nikki Wheeler Nicholson. Yeah! Yeah. Nikki! Nikki, yeah! And now I'd like to introduce a member of my extended family and yours. This lady is very special to me. Her family is very special to me. If there would be no Comic-Con here, there would be no Batman if it wasn't for a certain man by the name of Bill Finger. You probably already know the story. Bob Kane came up with this Batman character in a red costume with a little uh, domino mask and bat wings coming out of his back. And he showed it to Bill and Bill said, well, if he's a Batman, he's nocturnal, he should be costumed in dark colors. And Superman's out, he's got these bizarre powers. Let's make him human, change the wings into a scalloped cape that look like bat wings. And why not add some gloves and a belt that can do things? And why a little mask? Let's make him look like a bat. Give him a cowl, put some ears on it. And why don't you white out the eyes like on the phantom so it looks more mysterious? And then he said to Bob, well, who is this guy? And Bob said, well, I don't know. I haven't come up with that story yet. So Bill Finger named him Bruce Wayne in a city that he named Gotham City and gave us in Detective Comics number 33 the primal gut-wrenching origin of Batman we all know and love that has impacted and affected us all since we were kids. His granddaughter is an amazing artist and she is painting pictures of Batman and recreating comic book covers and she's absolutely incredible. So ladies and gentlemen, if in your heart you appreciate what Bill Finger gifted to all of us, Please give a real Comic-Con welcome to another member of my extended family, Athena Finger. Yeah! Woo! Yeah! Yeah! Love it! Love it! Yeah! So 
by now maybe you realize, oh, maybe this guy is not a Hollywood suit who's going to read something off a teleprompter. <laughs> that ain't me. What I'm here to tell you about is what the hell do you do when you are burning with a passion? When you love something so much that you can feel it coursing through your veins, what do you do when you love comic books and collect comic books and love superheroes? And I don't mean like a lot of younger people today, oh, we love Marvel, we hate DC. Oh, we love DC, we hate Marvel. I bought everything. I collected everything. I loved everything. My mom said I learned to read from comic books before I was four years old. By the time we moved into our house and I was a senior in high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936. My dad never once got his car in the garage. <laughs> he built me floor-to-ceiling shelves around three walls of the garage. We filled them up and then we had to fill up the whole bottom of the garage as well. 30,000 comic books. And that was my life, going to that first Comic-Con in New York City being part of fandom as it was first really organizing. Because when I was a kid, collecting comic books was the most alienating hobby you could ever imagine. Until fifth grade, I didn't know there was one other person alive who was so into comics. This is before computers. This is before social media. And it was amazing to finally start to learn, oh my God, there are people like me searching for other people like me so that we could form a community. And out of all the superheroes I loved and collected, I fell in love with Batman. When I was eight years old, my dream was to one day write Batman comics. And when I was eight years old, I swear to God, I believed in my heart of hearts that if I study really hard, if I worked out really hard, and if my dad bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. <laughs> Why? What is it that made us all fall in love with Batman? Well, number one, he's a superhero with no superpowers. His greatest superpower is his humanity. I can identify with that more than I could with the Hulk, or Superman, or most of the other characters. Number two, as I alluded to before, he has the most primal origin story of any comic book character. It not only transcends borders, but it transcends cultures around the world. And I'll tell you the truth, when I was eight, I never really thought up until that moment that my parents could die. Mm. And for an eight-year-old to read a story like that and make him start to think and react, that was pretty intense. Number three, oh my God, the car. <laughs> the car. On behalf of James Bond, we'd like to accept the award for the car. <laughs> and number four, I think many of you already know this, Stan Lee was not only my idol, he was my mentor, he was my friend. I first met him when I was 11 years old, and we got to work together creatively later on in life. And Stan said to me one day, he told me his theory of supervillains. He said, Michael, the greatest, most long-lasting, most popular superheroes in history are the ones who have had the greatest supervillains. Because ultimately, it's the supervillains who define the superhero. And man, nobody can touch Batman's rogues gallery. <laughs> and inarguably, feel free to applaud the villains. 
arguably the creation of Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson of the Joker was the and is the greatest supervillain in the history of comics. We're, we're going to talk more about that. And by the way, I told this to Mark Hamill. If anyone decides at some point in time to build a Mount Rushmore to the Joker, as of now, I'm putting three heads up there. Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, and Mark Hamill. So folks, what do you do when you have dreams? What do you do if you dream about writing Batman comics, or you dream about one day showing the world what the true Batman is? The guy created in 1939 by Bob and Bill as a creature of the night, stalking these severely disturbed villains in the shadows? What do you do when you're a blue-collar kid from New Jersey, and you don't know anyone in Hollywood, you have no relatives in Hollywood, you don't come from money, you can't buy your way into Hollywood. My dad was a bricklayer, a stonemason. My mom was a bookkeeper. So we didn't have money. How do you make your dreams come true? How do you take your passion and jump the Grand Canyon? And what I found is you have to look for every little possible opening in any door, stick your foot in it, and you have to get up off the goddamn couch. You do. Uh, <laughs> I've lectured all over the world at colleges and at Comic-Cons, and I found there's too many generations recently of younger people with this misguided sense of entitlement, as if the world's going to come to them or the world owes them something. And if maybe 15% of the people are getting up off the couch to, to discover their passion, to follow their passion, be proactive about it, your competition's only 15%, it's not 100%. Your chance of success just shot through the roof. Mm -hmm. So my first chance to get my foot in the door in my dream path came when I was in college. Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana, early 70s. A time of great experimentation on college campuses. <laughs> and I will not say anything more about that. <laughs> So in response to those times, the College of Arts and Sciences started this thing called the Experimental Curriculum Department. And this was the concept. If you have an idea for a college course that's never been taught and could get the backing of a department on campus, you then had the right to appear before a dean and a panel of professors and pitch it. If they accepted it, even though I was a junior undergrad, you could teach it for three hours of credit. So I said, now wait a minute. Comic books are a legitimate American art form as indigenous to this country as jazz. My superheroes are really, truly contemporary folklore. It's a modern-day mythology. The ancient gods of Greece and Rome and Egypt all still exist today, except they wear spandex and capes. So I went to the folklore department at IU, and I made my pitch. And the head of the folklore department said, Michael, I get it. I said, Doctor, the Greeks called them Hermes, the Romans called them Mercury, I call them the Flesh. <laughs> the Greeks called them Poseidon, the Romans called them Neptune, I call them Aquaman. <laughs> and he said to me, you know, you're, you're really right, because look at these comic book superhero stories, they are tales of hope and redemption of brave warriors fighting the demons and dragons of their day. And he said, you know what? It doesn't matter if you call them the Avengers, 
the Justice League, or King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, it's the same thing. I will back you. There you go. So now I go to appear before this panel. Let me set the scene for you. My hair is down to my shoulders. <laughs> I'm wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt. I've got a bunch of Superman and Batman comics under my arms. I'm wearing my hippie love beads. Thank you very much. <laughs> and as I go walking into this room, it is a dark mahogany room with a big conference table, professors around it. I thought I had just walked into the secret sanctum of the Justice League. <laughs> and as I walk in the door, the dean, do you ever see an old person who has this little pair of half glasses that he wears on the end of his nose, right? Okay. He looks down, down at me over his glasses and says, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? <laughs> Folks, I knew I was in deep sh uh, trouble. <laughs> and I launch into the first pitch of my life. He lets me speak for two minutes and cuts me off. He says, Mr. Usland, stop. He says, come on, really? He goes, look, I read comic books when I was a little kid. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. But all comic books are are cheap entertainment for children. Nothing more, nothing less. I reject your theory. This, don't say ah. <laughs> because this was the first life-changing moment I experienced on my journey. Because I could have bowed my head, picked up my funny books, and turned around and walked out. But I figured I have absolutely nothing to lose here. There you go. So I decided to stand my ground. And I said to the dean, may I ask you just two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, dean, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me and he goes, well, yeah, so? I go, so dean, very, very briefly, could you just summarize the story of Moses for me? And he folded his arms, sat back in his chair, and said, well, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, but I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted, their firstborn were being slain. Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and sent him down the River Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he becomes a great, I go, stop, thank you so much. Dean, you said you read Superman comics when you were a kid. By any chance, do you remember the origin of Superman? He said, of course. The planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and sent him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents, who raise him as their own son. And then he stops, stares at me for what I swear to you was an eternity, and says, your course is accredited. Holy shit, I am now the world's first college professor of comic books. So I'm on cloud nine. I'm walking back to my apartment, and, I'm, and all of a sudden I can hear my mom inside my head the way I, I could hear her words. Michael, you, could, you can always have the greatest creative ideas ever, but if you don't market yourself, if you don't market them, nobody will ever know about it. So I'm an undergrad in Bloomington, Indiana. We, we kindly called it the oasis in the desert. I have no power. I have no money. How, how am I going to do this? So once again, figuring I have absolutely nothing to lose, I picked up a telephone and I called United Press International, which back then was the biggest news syndicate along with Associated Press. I asked to speak to a reporter. The man got on the phone, and I proceeded to scream at him.
What is wrong with you? You're not doing your job. You're supposed to be the watchdogs of our society. He said, well, calm down. What are you talking about? I said, what am I talking about? Are you kidding me? This is outrageous. I heard there is a course on comic books being taught at Indiana <laughs> University. I said, are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state that they are spending my money to teach our children comic books? I said, this has got to be a communist plot to subvert the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. <laughs> it took this reporter three days to find out if IU really had a course like this, and if so, who was the lunatic teaching it? He knocks on my door. He does an article. They take pictures. It's a third of a page long. This gets picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America, a whole bunch in Europe. My phone starts to ring and never stops. I'm invited on radio talk shows. I'm invited on TV talk shows. I never taught one comic book class that wasn't filled with television cameras, NBC Nightly News, the CBS Evening News, and reporters. There was one night sitting in my front row, I had Parade Magazine, I had Family Weekly Supplement, Playboy and Penthouse. This appealed to everybody. So about two weeks go by, my phone rings. I pick it up and it's this exuberant male voice. Hi, is this Mike Uslin? Uh, yeah. Hiya, Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. I call this my burning bush moment. I was talking to my God. Stan says, Mike, everywhere I look, I'm seeing you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? That began my adult relationship with Stan. Two hours later, the phone rings, and this time it's a dour male adult voice. Mr. Uslan, yes. My name's Saul Harrison. I'm vice president of DC Comics in New York City. We publish Superman, Wonder Woman. I go, yeah, I'm Batman, I know. He goes, we've been listening to you on the radio. We've been reading about you in magazines. You are a very innovative young man. We'd like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we can work together. Geek dream, geek dream come true. Okay, so next thing I'm in New York, they offer me a job. I would, I would start working there summers in New York and then they will put me on retainer when I go back to college. So I'm now, it's the summertime, I'm working at DC. It's the end of a long day. I'm about to get the train back home to New Jersey. Asbury Park, Jersey Shore. And Gotcha, guys. And all of a sudden, from down the editor's offices, down the hall, I hear yelling and screaming. I thought somebody was being murdered. It was all coming from the office of Denny O'Neill. Oh. For those of you who know Denny, he is one of my favorite comic book writers of all time. And he was, at that time, the editor of a little comic book that he did with Mike Kaluta called The Shadow. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know who The Shadow is, shame on you. Yeah, yeah. Go find out because it was Bill Finger's <laughs> primary influence in creating Batman. Yeah. So, I'm right on that, Athena, right? The Shadow. Okay. <laughs> so I go, Denny, what's going on? Are you okay? He goes, no, I am not okay. I go, what's the problem? He goes, the problem is I just found out now that there is a Shadow script do tomorrow. I don't have a shadow script. 
I don't have a shadow story. I don't even have an idea for a shadow story. I said, Denny, I have an idea for a shadow story. He said, you do? I didn't. <laughs> but so what? I saw the door open, that little crack, so I shoved my foot in it. He says, all right, come in, sit down, Michael. He goes, what's your idea for a shadow story? You're gonna love this. It's really good. My wife and I had just come back from a visit to Niagara Falls. And back in the 30s and 40s, when the shadow stories were set, people were going over the falls and barrels, walking across in tightropes. I said, well, picture this. Um, shadow battling a bad guy on a tightrope over Niagara Falls. Nighttime, searchlights in the sky. He goes, that is a great cover. I love that as a cover idea. But Michael, what's the story about? I said, well, Denny, I'm just getting to that. The story is about smuggling. He goes, well, what are they smuggling? I said, well, they are smuggling drugs. And he goes, okay, he says, but what's the creative hook? What's different about it? That's what I need. I said, well, I've been saving this for last <laughs> because this is the best part because they were going over the falls and back. False bottoms in the barrels, that's where they're putting the drugs, they're going over the Canadian side, they're washing up onto the American side, that's how they're getting them through. Then he says, now that's unique, that's different. He says, Michael, can you have a full script on my desk at 6 p.m. tomorrow? I said, not a problem. He says, go do it, I'm now a writer for DC Comics. <laughs> shadow script. Two weeks later, I'm walking down the halls of DC and who's coming toward me but the most important editor arguably in the history of comics, Julie Schwartz. Mm. If you don't know, thank you for the applause, if you don't know, Julie was responsible for turning Batman back to his dark roots in the 70s mm -hmm. and for the Silver Age Justice League, Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, Adam. Now Julie was a gruff guy until you got to know him, then he was kind of a marshmallow. But he, he sees me coming, and again, my hair's down to my shoulders, and he goes, hey, kid. I go, yes, Julie? He goes, I read your shadow script. I said, you did? He goes, yeah. It didn't stink. I go, oh, my God, thank you. Thank you so much. And he looked at me and said, how'd you like to take a shot at writing Batman? I still get the chills, folks. This dream I had since I was eight years old came true. I'm a senior in college, and I'm now writing detective comics. Oh my God. When that first issue came out and I stopped crying, <laughs> I panicked. Because, oh my God, this dream I had since I was eight years old came true. I don't have a dream. I need a new dream. What's my new dream going to be? It took 10 minutes for the epiphany. Because then I remembered back to a cold night in January 1966. This teenage comic book geek was waiting months for this night because it was the premiere of the Batman television series. Oh yeah. I was in our downstairs den and the show came on the air. Oh, look at that animation. It's kind of Jerry Robinson, Bob Kane. Cool. Oh, it's in color. Oh, the sets are extravagant. They're spending money. Man, the car is cool. It was 20 minutes in before I realized it. This is a comedy. They're making a joke out of Batman. The whole world is laughing at Batman, and that just killed me. 
So I made a vow that night in front of my TV, just like young Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, with a bat coming through the but window. But he made his vow over the slaughtered bodies of his parents in the street. Mine were safe in the kitchen upstairs. And I said, somehow, someday, some way, I am going to make dark and serious Batman movies to show the world that true Batman is created by Bill and Bob back in 39. And I'm going to find some way to eliminate, to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three new words popping out at me, pow, zap, and wham. So, but what do you do when you don't come from money, again? And what do you do when you don't know anyone in Hollywood and have no relatives in Hollywood? So the day came when I went back to Saul Harrison, who had mentored me into the comic book business. He was now president of DC Comics. I said, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman. I want to make dark and serious Batman movies. And he was a lovely man. He was very fatherly toward me. He said, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. He said, don't you understand that since the Batman TV show went off the air, the brand is as dead as a dodo. Nobody's interested in Batman anymore. I said, but Saul, if we do it in a dark and serious way, nobody's ever made a comic book feature film that looked like that. It's almost going to be like a new form of entertainment. And he said, Michael, is there any way I can talk you out of this? I said, mm, no. He said, all right, Schmoozle, come on in. Schmoozle. That began a six-month negotiation, giving me time to find a partner who actually knew how to mount a production. He was my pop's age, Ben Melniker. Remember the name. Ben was a legend in the movie business. He ran MGM in its Tiffany years. Ben put together some movies. God, I hope you know what they are. One was called Dr. Zhivago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One he did with Charlton Heston called Ben-Hur. Yeah, I think I've heard of that one. <laughs> and another one, what was ben that Hur, called yeah. again? Oh, yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we raised money privately. Yeah, it was expensive. And on October 3rd, 1979, I'm a kid in my 20s, and I buy the rights to Batman. If you had not heard the story set up, you would go, it's impossible. It's unfathomable. How can, how can a kid in his 20s buy the rights to Batman? Now you know the secret. And it's very unglamorous. I was the only one on the planet who showed up. <laughs> mm. So, I quit my job. Go out to Hollywood. I said, this is going to be a snap. Every studio is going to line up on my doorstep. They'll see the potential for sequels, animation, toys, games. I was turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. Everyone. They told me I was crazy. They said, this is the worst idea we've ever heard. They go, Michael, come on. You can't do serious comic book films. Michael, you're nuts. You cannot do dark superheroes. Michael, you're out of your mind. You can't make a movie based on an old TV series. Turn down, turn down, turn down. The last major studio we went to pitch, and I pitched my heart out. There was an older guy who had been there 25 years who basically said the same thing as everyone else. But then he said, listen, fellas, if you really want to do this Batman thing, 
We'll consider doing it with you, but it's got to be the pot-bellied, funny, pow-zap-wham Batman that audiences will remember and love. And I looked at him and I said, no way. And he sat down right in front of me, leaned in and said, Michael, you're a young man. It is better to have a movie than to have no movie at all. And I looked at him and I said, no. So hold your applause till you hear all the pain and suffering. <laughs> so after the meeting, we're on the studio lot, we're sitting on a bench, and I am despondent. I mean, this was the last stu big studio. And Ben looked at me and he said, you know something, Michael, it's pretty ironic. Of all the no's we got, the last and final no came from you. And then he looked at me and said, Michael, you know what you are? I said, yeah, Ben, I'm an idiot. He says, no, you are Batman's Batman. <laughs> you are defending him. You are protecting him. You have this vision you believe in. So let's march on and keep going with this. If you so totally believe in it, we can make this happen. And he picked me up out of the doldrums. And as a result, from the time we bought the rights to Batman till the first movie was able to be made took 10 years. 10 years of rejection, 10 years of people telling me I suck, 10 years of people telling me my ideas are terrible. And let me tell you something, folks. When you hear nothing but rejection for 10 years, it tests your mettle as a human being. Mm -hmm. You've got to look deep inside yourself and go, okay, is the whole world right and I am just being stubborn, or do I really believe in this? Do I really believe in myself? And I kept coming up with the latter answer. And the question became, how can I hold on by my fingertips? I had then a young son who you just met. I had my first mortgage. Forget about next month. I didn't know how I was gonna pay next week's bills. How was I gonna survive and hold out? Look, young Michael, I thought I would go to Hollywood and fight a war. Every day I would go get dressed and fight a battle here and fight a battle there. It's not true. It's a siege. You've got to dig a foxhole, put a helmet on, hunker down. And the most important decision you can make is who are you going to let in the foxhole to watch your back? Mm. Ten years. 1986 now. A young genius waltzes into our lives by the name of Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. I've been in this business now 43 years. I do not use the term genius lightly. And it's Tim Burton who has the big idea. And when I say the big idea, and the fact that he deserves all the accolades, all the credit, it's because his big idea just didn't make our movie happen. It changed Hollywood. It literally changed the world culture and its perception of superheroes and comic books. And here's what happened. Tim said to me, if we are going to make the first ever serious comic book superhero movie, this movie cannot be about Batman. My heart stopped. He goes, this movie has got to be about Bruce Wayne. That's the big idea. If audiences don't believe in Bruce Wayne and don't suspend their disbelief and buy into it, He's going to get unintentional laughs no matter which actor is putting on a bat suit. And he was right about that. 
Think about it today. You want to go see an Iron Man movie? Those movies should really be entitled Tony Stark. Mm -hmm. Go to see the Spider-Man movies. You're really going to see Peter Parker the movie. To this very day, Tim Burton's vision impacts every single genre picture. And so does my dear friend Anton First's work. Anton was our production designer on that movie. The script comes in from Sam Hamm, and there's like one line describing Gotham City. It says something like, Gotham City as if hell has erupted from under the earth. So Anton turns to Tim and goes, what does this mean? And Tim says, you know, I think this means New York City had there never been planning and zoning. <laughs> Anton goes, I get it. He, he goes off, he studies conflicting styles of architecture, comes in with all the plans for Gotham City, the Batmobile, the whole look of the picture. And don't kid yourselves, to this very day, this coming weekend, every genre movie is influenced by the design work of Anton First. It was Tim's corollary to the big idea. It was world building is essential. From the opening frames of our movie, we, miss, we must make audiences believe in Gotham City. It must be the third most important character in this piece, or they will never believe in a guy getting dressed up as a bat, fighting a guy who looks like the Joker. It was May 1980. Memorial weekend was beginning, and I get on a bus from New York City heading home. I open up the afternoon paper, Two movies are opening up, The Empire Strikes Back and a horror film called The Shining. For the first time, I see this picture of Jack Nicholson that is the most maniacal looking thing I've ever seen as he's kind of peering around a doorway. Do you know the shot? Yep. It's yep. called the Here's Johnny shot, very iconic. Okay. I go, oh my God, this is the Joker. I tore that sucker out. As soon as I got home, I ran to my desk. I took white, you guys know what white out is? Okay. <laughs> I took white out and I whited Jack's face out. I took a red pen, I did his lips, I took a green ma magic marker, I did his hair, and I showed everybody why Jack Nicholson was the only actor who could play the Joker. He gets signed, greatest day of my career, 10 days goes by, our exec from the studio calls me and says, so Michael, what do you think of Tim's new idea? I said, what's that? Michael Keaton to play Batman. So I said, well, that's funny. We've been in this mix for seven and a half years to get a serious Batman, let's hire a comedian. I can, I can see our poster, Mr. Mom is Batman. <laughs> it, took, it took Michael 20 minutes to convince me this was not just a joke they were playing on me. And I was apoplectic. And I went to see Tim, and I, I said, Tim, he's my height. I mean, he's not a muscle guy. For God's sake, he doesn't have the jaw of Batman. And he said, Michael, going from one medium to another, a square jaw does not a Batman make. Oh, I can carve musculature into a costume, I can cheat height, but we've got to get them to believe in Bruce Wayne. He said, now I did Beetlejuice now with Michael Keaton. I go, but he's a comedian. So they quickly set up a screening of the rough cut of a movie called Clean and Sober for yes. me to see. That was it. Came back, I said, I take it all back. The guy's a sensational exactly actor. But, exactly he said, no buts. I'm telling you, Michael will give us a portrayal of Bruce Wayne so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic that audiences will go, oh yeah, that guy would get dressed up as a bat. <laughs> so, the mo oh, one other thing, I can't forget this. Talk about influencing every genre movie since then. What about the incredible music of Danny Elfman?
I still get the chills when I hear his Batman theme and his Batmobile theme. And, and his notes influence everybody, everybody, all the composers. Ask Hans Zimmer, he will tell you. So the movie comes out. I think it's the best marketed, traditionally marketed movie in history, again, before social media. The billboards go up, the posters go up, the name of the movie is not on the poster or the billboards. It's just a gold oval with a black bat, and all it says is June 23rd, but by God, everybody knew what this movie was. But we had a big problem, and our big problem was with you guys. Because like me, you immediately reacted to go, oh no, they hired a comedian, and it's gonna be directed by the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> this is gonna be another campy, funny, silly Batman. And you guys, without computers or social media, were so up in arms through all the mass media, I thought the studio was going to be surrounded by you guys with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> so quickly, we had to get a trailer out. A trailer that would signal to you, we know what we're doing here, I'm one of you, you gotta wait till you see it, which nobody was prepared to do, until we put this trailer out in theaters, which was the entire turning point for this movie and then all superhero movies to follow. This is what audiences saw in early 89. game changer. And um, it would be some years later when I would encounter the next genius. And I am so privileged to have been involved in projects with now five geniuses that I, people I consider to be geniuses. It's a man who goes by the name of Christopher Nolan. So Chris's job was to restore the darkness and dignity to Batman. And he wanted to do the same thing Tim did, but he was gonna come at it 180 degrees differently. Because the world had changed. This was post 9-11. We no longer were in a black and white world of good versus evil and the Joker, the clown prince of crime. This was a world of gray. This is our world today of order versus chaos in which the Joker is a terrorist, a homicidal maniac who places no value on human life whatsoever. So, in my estimation, this is all my vision of this, what Chris's incredible challenges were, he wanted to make this real. He wanted to make all of us believe in this day and age there could be a young man like Bruce Wayne who's affected with post-traumatic stress syndrome, goes on a journey of self-discovery right out of Lost Horizon, and could come back and be a guy who is capable of putting on a mask and cowl. And he got Christian Bale to execute. Number two, he needed to make you feel Gotham City was real today, so he wasn't going to do what Tim did and build five square city blocks on the back lot of Pinewood Studios. What he did was go to Chicago, because if you take two iconic buildings out of the skyline, people around the world don't know it. 
If you had filmed in New York, the second you see Times Square, the Statue of Liberty, ah, oh, it's New York, breaks the suspension of disbelief. Chicago is different. Gotham City lives in reality. Third thing was the Joker. In the portrayal of a lifetime by Heath Ledger, working with Chris, they crafted this amazing, amazing performance. And we believed the Joker not only could be real, but we were scared shitless by him. <laughs> and next came what I think was his biggest challenge. How is he going to convince all you smart people that all this tech, all these gadgets could possibly be real? He hired Morgan Freeman to tell you it was real. <laughs> If Morgan Freeman says it's true, by God, it's true. By God, okay. Wow. Wow. A couple of shout-outs that are really important. The folks, the brilliant folks in animation do not get enough credit. Yeah, that's right. Don't quote me on this, and if anyone says we had this little intimate conversation, I'll deny it. I think some of the best stories in the history of Batman and the media come Bruce out of the Tim. animation. Yep, yep, yep. Bruce Tim and the team. For those of you who are not sure, go see Mask of the Fantastic. Yep, yep. For those yep. of you who are not sure and you want to see the real way to do Mr. Freeze, go watch the episodes. Yep. And that's right. That's right. That's right. Michael and Sarah. And God is a bless not only Mark Hamill, but Kevin Conroy. Yeah. Yeah. The, the DC comic book people do not get the spotlight enough. They've brought us back every Wednesday since 1939 to see what's going to happen next. Who's the villain going to be? Where is this going? And they're the unsung heroes of the whole story. And that's everybody that's been associated with it over the years. And before we move into Q&A, I just want to wrap this up by telling you, I believe the future of Batman is eternal and bright. There are filmmakers coming with vision who I know love these characters. They understand these characters. They have a vision for them and they know how to execute. And I couldn't be more excited about what's coming down the pike here. I told you my dad was a stonemason. My father had to drop out of high school when he was 16 years old to help his family survive the depression and go to work. My dad worked six days a week his entire life until he was 80 years old. We kept, coming, kept going, but my mom got sick and he stopped to take care of her. And my dad got up before dawn every day, big smile on his face, couldn't wait to go to work. He loved what he did. He was an old world artist. He was a craftsman. And you should see the fireplaces he built out of brick and marble and cement. So my brother and I went to work for him summers. It was the worst thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> in that grueling heat, carrying bags of cement, tarring foundations. But then I understood my dad, and I realized I had to go out and find my own bricks and stones. Mm. And for me, it was comic books, movies, and Batman. Mm. Incorporating your passion into your work. How important that could be. And so, to wrap up this little discussion just between us, I'm just going to end with a quote, because my eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. Friedman, insisted I read this poem, and she suggested I use it as my guidepost throughout the rest of my life. It's by Robert Frost, and it's called The Road Not Taken. Mm. 
I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I chose the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Thank you, everybody. Q&A, Q&A, Q&A. So come up to the mic, and let's have a conversation. We've got some time. Don't be shy. If I can't, if I'm not allowed to answer it, I'll tell you I'm not allowed to answer it. Who's up first? Hello, um, my Hi. name is Chen. I'm from Taiwan. I'm very proud that uh, this, that, that big fan of Batman and your work. And I was always wondering that if you ever consider to make your original class an open class in, in like on the internet for the rest of us could. Uh, like have a glimpse of what you did those all those years ago. A glimpse into my my own backstory is that what you're? Uh, no, I mean your original course. Oh, my course. Yeah. Of course, I took. I taught. Yeah. The all I can say is this: for those of you who don't know, a couple of years ago, my son David and I, along with my mentor and idol Stan Lee, decided to teach a course on the rise of the superheroes for the Smithsonian Institution. Mm. That course is available to you absolutely for free online okay. through edX. The Rise of the Superheroes, Smithsonian Institution. We originally had 165,000 students sign up. You're more than welcome to join that, and I think you will find that to be a lot of fun and follow a lot of what I did back in Indiana. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. First of all, would you put the, um, Cesar Romero on that Joker Mount Rushmore? Yeah. You no, not well. He because he didn't shave the goddamn mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever read yeah. the story of the princess and the pea? That was like a pea under the mattress. I, I, it drove me crazy. Okay. Anyway, um, I noticed when I was a kid that it seemed like as the um, animated series, uh, the cartoon seemed to follow the essence of your movie. The Schumacher movies seem to become more cartoony, like the Batman TV show. So I'm wondering, uh, it's like, what happened with the Schumacher movies? And was it really about merchandising, or was it something else? And what were your feelings on it, by the way? All right. So here's what we're going to do. I am not going to talk about Batman. I am only going to talk about the motion picture industry generally. Oh, okay. Do we understand each other? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Generally, in the motion picture industry, what used to be simply movie studios have become international conglomerates. They might own a theme park, they might own a toy company, a t-shirt company. There's a lot of wheels to be greased. Sometimes, generally, in the motion picture industry, <laughs> there are those executives who become very, very enamored with toys and Happy Meals to the point where they will dictate to a filmmaker that this should be light and bright and kitty friendly and family friendly. And they might even say something generally in the industry, they need three heroes and three villains, each one has to have two costume changes and two vehicles. Mm. <laughs> wow. When that happens in the industry generally, <laughs> I believe the tail starts wagging the dog and you are no longer making movies, you're making two-hour infomercials for toys. Yep. On the other hand, 
if you find committed filmmakers with a vision and they understand a character and have the passion, and you let them go out and make great movies based on great stories, not on special effects or blowing shit up, but make great stories, you're going to sell toys anyway. Yep. Mm -hmm. So yep. we were lucky enough that there were new people that came in at our studio who had the balls to give the keys to the most valuable franchise to a young independent filmmaker who had the passion, had the vision, had the talent, and all that stuff led us to the Dark Knight trilogy. Oh, yeah. And that was worth everything. Thank you. Yeah, I, again, I'm sorry I could not answer your question. Hello <laughs> <laughs> there. Hi. My name is um, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Um, I just, first of all, I just wanted to say that um, the uh, 1989 Batman and Mask of Phantasm are my two favorite Batman films of all time. Let's have lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I just want to say, um, did you think uh, when you cast uh, Michael Keaton as Batman that his Batman would be as popular as it is today alongside like Christian Bale or anyone else? Yeah, people say that. Did you ever anticipate or could you ever have possibly envisioned what was to come? Yes? <laughs> How the hell was I able to live for 10 years if I didn't? I, yeah, I imagined all of this. I really did. It sounds crazy, but I did. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Hey there, thank you very much for everything you've helped to bring to the world, Batman-wise. Uh, the 1989 movie was pivotal to my childhood. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it's another casting question. I read your book, and I loved it, uh, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Oh, Stanley told me whenever I have a chance to plug something, plug it. Uh, it's my autobiography, it tells the whole story. And on October 1st, a brand new second edition will be coming out in hardback. Okay. You can now tell everyone you were at Comic Con 2019 and Stan Lee did a cameo appearance. Uh, excellent book. Buy it, read it, enjoy it. But there was one problem. Uh oh. I loved Ledger. I loved Nicholson, Keaton, Bale. Loved them. But in your book, you said that at one point there was the possibility of Bruce Wayne being played by Bill Murray. And, and you said that there was the possibility of the Joker being played by David Bowie. No, 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 that is not in my book. Uh -huh. How close did this happen? No, 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 that's not my book. It's not my book because here's the deal. Whenever you're in a studio meeting or you're a production meeting or you're just in your office, names get tossed around. Lists get made. And it doesn't mean it's ever gone farther than, hey, can you imagine... Bill Murray or Chevy Chase as Batman. Um, it doesn't necessarily go any farther than that. Sometimes I may say, well, call the agent, see if he's available, or see if there would be interest. And that happens all the time. Okay. So to then rewrite history and say, oh, Bill Murray, David Bowie, um, Barbara Streisand was in consideration to play Robin. You know, it's, 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 yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Let's keep going. How are we doing on time, all right? Great, thanks. Hi, my name is Jonathan, and hey, John. you know, I'd like to thank you for all of your work, because in the 80s, I was a kid starving for any kind of superheroes on the movies and TV, and I was just obsessed with your movie coming out. And I'm just so thankful that that came out for me thank and you. everybody else. Um, now, I was wondering, what do you think about the, the current scene about 
um, all these ideas about Batman 2000, Batman Beyond, um, possibly being turned into a movie. I mean, could you champion that? Because it, it seems like the no-brainer to me to have that come out. All right, listen to this. So, <laughs> years ago, years ago, and, and I'm going to talk more as as fanboy Michael than producer Michael. So don't get on the internet and say, "Oh, Uslan said there's going to be a Batman Beyond." It, it, it's not that at all. Okay, it's not that at all. As a fanboy, I was championing the idea of doing a Batman Beyond movie a long time ago, and I said it should be a Clint Eastwood movie of him playing Bruce Wayne in his, in his 70s. And I said that would be a really cool movie. If you were to ask me as fanboy Michael today, it's the ideal way to get Michael Keaton back into the franchise. That is not the producer, that's fanboy, right? Geek dream, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to pause for one minute. I want to show you something. You know, I troll the internet. I go to the fan sites and everything. I stumbled across the following little video. It's very short. And I don't even know who the fan who did it. Maybe one of you can tell me who did this. But I want to share it with you. It's what if we made that first Batman movie in Please come up to me later, because I really want to reach out to that person. Uh, next question. Thank you, sir. Uh, in Batman 89, he has like this medieval chest emblem with feet and everything else. You didn't use that in the posters or any of the advertising, and I heard it was a rights issue. Is that true? Not exactly, no. 
Um, it was a choice of uh, Tim Burton with Bob Ringwood, uh, the costume designer. They were going for that. After the first Batman, when the merchandising totally exploded, there's a rumor out that DC said, ooh, we needed to correspond to our trademark really, really closely. And there was, you might notice, an adjustment in the symbol for the second movie. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, it is so great to be here, and again, as part of our extended family, fellow comic book geeks just getting together and talking Batman. Thanks for coming out tonight.